sometimes it's sort of a puzzle where there will be a string of letters in unbroken sequence, one after another, and you're told that the, the letters have meaning if you put the divisions in the right place. And sometimes some of these have perhaps more than one way to be broken up. The example I was thinking of said something about a table. It was table or it was able. I don't know if any of you have seen these same ones. But the thing is, if you can divide the letters in the right place, let me scoot back a little bit. If you can divide the, the letters in the right place, you can make sense out of the unbroken string. If you can't, they're just nonsense. So the key is, where do I put the divisions? How do I parse that, that uh, broke, unbroken line of letters so that they form words and sentences and I get meaning out of it? And I use that as an opening illustration to talk about prophetic scriptures. We'll be talking about some prophetic elements in the scriptures this morning. And perhaps in this arena of theology, more than any other, if you don't get these divisions right, you're left with nonsense, with no sense. How do I put these prophetic elements together? How does one thing correlate or relate to another? So we'll be talking about prophetic elements this morning. Now, some people love prophetic conferences. You know, some churches use them as draw. You, you flash uh, vibrant red pictures of the Antichrist or of Christ returning to the earth. You pique people's interest and you get them to come to a conference. Uh, most of us aren't like that. Most of us aren't going to those conferences, though. And if you start talking about prophetic issues, the truth is it involves so many scriptures and sort of tangents that you start losing people. Uh, so stick with me this morning. I think there's, there's value in the end. Stick with me. None of us, I'm convinced, in our lifetime will ever get all the prophetic elements of the scriptures right. That is, we're never in our lifetimes here, as much as we study or try and get a handle on these things, as much as we try and make sense out of that running line of letters, which is the prophetic element, so to speak, of the scriptures. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, we'll never get everything nailed down just right, but I think we can do this at least. We can minimize confusion by making some key distinction at some key points along the way to say, this relates to one time period or frame, these sets of scriptures, this relates to something else. We can make some sense instead of being left with nonsense. Um, my goals for this morning in the passage we'll be in, which is 1 Thessalonians 5, are pretty simple. Understand the basic elements of the text. Have some minor grasp of the issues related to making sense out of this passage. And then I'll present what I think is a plausible uh, series uh, by which we can understand the prophetic events that 1 Thessalonians talks about. And a few disclaimers before we, before we start. The first is this. If you talk about the Bible and theology in any area you're thinking of, if you get 10 different people, you might end up with 10 different opinions about what does the Bible really say. Well, you take that dynamic and multiply it if the subject you're talking about are prophetic subjects. That is, there's greater divergence of opinion on how do we put all these various texts in the Old Testament and the New together in order to make sense of what God has said is going to happen before it's happened. Greater divergence of opinion in this area than any other. My own convictions on this are old and deep. 
And so I'm unapologetic about what I present to you this morning on one hand. But knowing that godly people that I respect don't agree with my position, I realize I hold these things loosely enough to remind myself that I can fellowship with other people that don't hold the right position on eschatology. You're okay. <laughs> You're okay. <clears throat> We're okay. Godly people don't see eye to eye on many of the prophetic issues we'll talk about this morning. And by the way, I'm limiting our discussion very intentionally, primarily to the subjects that are raised in the text we're in. In 1 Thessalonians, we'll actually look back a little bit in chapter 4, but also at the text in, verse, in chapter 5. And we'll talk a little bit more broadly, but we're, really we're keeping the discussion fairly narrow. And we'll talk a little later about things broadly enough to say this is where these elements appear to fit in the bigger scheme of things. A second disclaimer is this. Maybe you've done this too. I read 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, and I'm scratching my head, and I'm sort of asking God, Lord, why didn't you make this plainer? Why are these things so disjointed? Why don't they appear to read more evenly and appear more obvious what you wanted to say to us? And one of the things we've got to remind ourselves about is this. When Paul's writing this group, Paul's writing a group of Christians that knew him, spent time with him. They heard him verbally preach. He had discussions with them. In other words, they had a body of information we don't have. So when he wrote to them, he's assuming, he's presuming on some of those earlier communications that we simply don't have today. The other thing is this, even with that prior body of information from Paul's discussions with them, they still scratch their heads. Because when he writes a second letter, they're still asking him questions. They're still confused about these same elements. So on one hand, that first audience, they knew more than we did. They had, they had uh, talks and they remembered things, Paul had said earlier, that we simply weren't privy to. And on the flip side, it's a convoluted enough uh, passage and subjects that we're tr- treating that uh, misunderstanding is easy to come by. The bottom line, though, is this. Uh, words have meaning. You know, whether we can get them divided up just right or not, perfectly or not. Words have meaning, and God wants us to take something away from these prophetic scriptures. I had an old friend, a guy who mentored me many years ago, who would say routinely, I've said this before, Mike, what difference does it make if I understand Revelation or not? I'm like, because God gave it to us. Because it's there for a reason, because we're supposed to take something away from this. God gave us it. It has meaning. We should work at understanding it and applying the message. And so that's what we can say, at least, about any of the prophetic passages. In a sense, sorry for the long introduction, uh, but in a sense, this is part two of the study on the the rapture that we looked at in chapter four. Chapter five is not actually talking about the rapture, but as you'll see, they're intimately connected. And We'll talk about the rapture as we get past the the verses we read this morning. We'll look at it from a vantage point, though, of another element that Paul brings into this discussion called the day of the Lord. And that's what starts chapter 5. That's the new subject he takes off on. So the rapture has a relationship with this period of time Paul calls the day of the Lord. And that's what we'll be primarily talking about this morning. So with all that said... First Thess 5, starting at verses 1, we'll read through verse 11. Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly 
like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they won't escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Those who sleep do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk get drunk at night. Since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we will, together, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another, build up one another, just as you also are doing. The first thing I want to point out in the passage, did you notice the us and them phrases? Us and them phrases. Look at verse 3. Paul says, while they are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them. They will not escape. Verse 7, those, they, those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Look at verses 4 through 10. I'll just skip through this quickly. Verse 4, but you brothers are not in darkness of the day would overtake you. You are all sons of light. We are not of night. Let us not sleep. Let us be alert. We are of the day. Let us be sober. God has not destined us for wrath. Verse 10, Christ who died for us, whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Related to this topic, Paul brings up here in chapter 5, the day of the Lord. As soon as this conversation begins, Paul brings in this us and them or we and those phrases. This did not exist in chapter 4 when he was talking about the rapture of the church. The subject was on Christians and the church. There was no us and them. As soon as Paul brings in this day of the Lord, all of a sudden we've got a different set of people involved. We've got a point of time in which people groups are divided for Paul in this discussion. There's us and them. It's a new time, and I think this is one of the places we draw the line. We see the series of letters in front of us. This is where we draw a line at what Paul calls the day of the Lord. Following up on this, Paul's a Jew, and even though the church he's writing to is part Jew and part Gentile, they didn't all have the same background of knowledge Paul did. When Paul says the day of the Lord, he's using a phrase that the Jews were very well acquainted with. The day of the Lord is a loaded phrase if you were Jewish and knew your Old Testament. So I'm going to read a series, uh, short, brief excerpts from the Old Testament. If you read NIV, the day of the Lord's translated 22 times, New American Standard 21 times. In every occurrence of its use, the day of the Lord has to do with a time of God's intense judgment on the earth and almost always, a couple of exceptions, but almost always related to the end times. The exceptions would be in Joel where he uses the term the day of the Lord and some of those judgments happen in Joel's time. But we also understand because Peter quotes Joel's passage, same passage as in Acts, there's probably a future fulfillment of those as well. But just some examples, day of the Lord, some reference about what Paul has in mind when he says this. Isaiah 13, verses 6 and 9. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. 
Ezekiel 30, verse 3, For the day is near, the day of the Lord is near, a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Obadiah, probably been a while since you've read in Obadiah. Obadiah 1.15, The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. And last example, Malachi 4, verse 5, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So when Paul introduces this phrase, this new theme here in 1 Thessalonians 5, he's bringing up a theme that's common for the Jews from the Old Testament. So it's a period of time at or near the end of time in which God brings direct and severe judgment on the earth. So, just related to change of gears and where we draw a line in this series of events God talks about. Paul's gone from talking about Christians meeting Christ in the air in chapter 4. Now he's talking about this period of judgment that's been prophesied on the earth for eons, for thousands of years in Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, in chapter 5. Related to the timing of the day of the Lord, Paul says here in verse 2, you know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction comes upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. So on one hand here, just as far as when does this happen, Paul says this day of the Lord period is sudden and it's unexpected. On the other hand, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, because he has to follow up on this theme for them, just like for us, what's going on? We still don't get it. He says the day of the Lord's absolutely predictable. So if you look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul continues the same thought there. He says, We request you, brothers, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. That's the rapture that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Here, Paul says, the day of the Lord cannot come unless there's this falling away, this apostasy, and key, this man of lawlessness comes on the scene. He calls him the man of lawlessness. This would be the person most of us uh, typically here referred to as the Antichrist. This would be the person we understand in Revelation 13 as well. It appears the way Paul has phrased this, that this is going on. The Thessalonians, if you remember back in chapter 1, they're undergoing severe persecution. And Paul's talked to them about these future events, this rapture, we're going to be caught up to meet Christ, and this day of judgment, this day of the Lord. Somebody either in their midst or around them has told them, you are in the day of the Lord. The judgments you're experiencing, the severe persecutions, this is actually the day of the Lord. And they're confused. Because they didn't think that's what they would see. So Paul writes back to say, you can't be in the day of the Lord because the man of lawlessness, this man of sin, this person we typically refer to as the Antichrist, isn't on the scene. And the day of the Lord can't come unless he comes first. 
On one hand, Paul says, the day comes suddenly. On the other, he says, it can't come without this marker, the man of lawlessness or the man of sin. If you say, how can it be sudden and unexpected? And yet it can only follow this given marker. I think the solution is this. For people in the world, when the man of sin, the man of lawlessness comes on the scene, he's going to look appealing and attractive and he's going to promise peace. And he's going to deliver on the promises at least short term. So his appearance to some will look like a very welcome thing, like a relief. But to the people of God and from God's perspective, the arrival of this this guy on the scene doesn't reflect coming peace. It reflects the beginning of this time of severe judgment, the day of the Lord. Then the question becomes, okay, well, what about the relationship of the rapture of the church and the day of the Lord? And just talk about some things that we understand from both. First, remember that related to the rapture of the church, the people Paul's writing, the Thessalonians, they understand that the rapture of the church, this being caught up by Christ in the air, can occur at any time. So if you go back to chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul says of this group of folks, they had turned from idols to God to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. The Thessalonians' life was characterized by waiting for Christ to return from heaven. Their understanding was he could come at any time. In chapter 4, what we looked at last time related to this, their concern was that Christian friends and family members who died were going to miss out on this rapture. They thought, we're going to be here for it, but those folks who have died, they're going to miss it. Paul says, one, no, they won't miss it. They'll lead the parade we talked about before. But Paul doesn't do anything to dissuade them from thinking Christ could appear for them at any moment. So for the Thessalonians, the thought that Christ could return, it was an imminent hope. As far as they understood, it could occur at any time. Nothing had to occur before Christ called them from the air to join him in the sky. That isn't true of this element Paul brings in today called the day of the Lord. Again, 2 Thess 2 verse 3 It can't come unless the apostasy comes first and this man of lawlessness is revealed. So, key difference between these two events, the rapture is imminent, it could occur at any time to Christians who are waiting for Christ. The day of the Lord occurs later to the world as they wait what they don't know, but the coming of the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, or the world's version of a Messiah, but a false or pseudo-Messiah. Let me just expand what we're talking about briefly just to say where does the rapture and the day of the Lord fit in together? And this is my take. This is my view. And if you don't agree with me and you're wrong, just keep studying. The pieces will all fit. I say this jokingly, but also I tend to be apologetic about this. Um, If you've been around for a little bit at all, if you've read or listened to radio programs, watched TV... um, you'll know that in the 70s and 80s, for instance, uh, the school of theology called dispensationalism, to which I hold, uh, had it all their way, so to speak. That is, these guys, guys who presented uh, my understanding of eschatology of future events, they were selling all the books. They were making all the money. So Hal, Hal Lindsey and late great planet Earth and Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye, I mean, they're making the bucks. 
Well, another school of theology, and not, not necessarily known by one name, covenant theology, post-millennialism, amillennialism, take your pick, these guys considered themselves, I think this is a fair assessment, uh, more academic, better theologians. They look down on anyone who holds a dispensational uh, theology. Dispensationalism, for what it's worth, is a very, very minority view among those who study eschatology. It's a small, small fragment. So in the last decades, this very minor point of view has been the public's understanding of future events. And guys who don't hold that view are over on the side, sorry, sort of gnashing their teeth saying, we've got to get rid of these dummies, these theological dummies, and tell people how it's really going to come about. So if you listen to the radio today, you will hear people who do not hold to the theology I'm presenting this morning, and, and basically they're grinding axes against anybody who holds a dispensational view. So I say tongue-in-cheek, if you're wrong, you know, keep studying. But there is, uh, there is some friction, if you will, on the airwaves and TV and books, etc., related to the things we're talking about this morning. This is my take, and this is the way I take those letters, those prophetic events, and parse them up so that I understand they make sense. The first is this. At any time, today when you're eating lunch, tomorrow when you go to school, Next week, next month, next year, I don't know. But imminently, at any time, Christ returns from heaven to the sky and he raptures, he catches up, he seizes Christians who belong to him. That happens, happens at any point. After the rapture, a period of time that lasts at least seven years long begins and it's the day of the Lord. And I say at least seven years long for this reason. In Daniel chapter 9, one of the key, everyone recognized one of the key prophetic passages in all the Bible, a Daniel is told that God has apportioned 70 periods of seven for the Jews. And he tells them, he breaks down the 70 periods of seven. And he tells them, these are the markers you'll see as these things transpire. Well, 69 of those seven-year periods have already been fulfilled. And Daniel's prophecy said, this happens until Messiah the Prince is cut off and has nothing. And that clock, if you will, seemed to stop. And there's still a seven-year period that has not been fulfilled in which the prince of the people that will come, this coming world ruler of a new world government, would come. That hasn't happened. So the day of the Lord is is tied to at least a seven-year period that follows Christ taking the church out of the world. That seven-year period typically called the Great Tribulation because there's a tie to that in the Old Testament in Jeremiah. So this day of the Lord period includes events described, for instance, in Revelation chapter 6 through 18 and into chapter 19. We're studying Revelation in Sunday school class. Bob's been very careful to say these are all the options, and and I'm not going to be that careful if you want to hear other people's opinions. Go read their books or listen to their their uh, radio programs. Um, You'll notice in Revelation, you've got first three chapters are written letters to the churches, to the churches. Chapters four and five, we see these worship scenes in heaven. Chapter six, we're back on earth and the church is nowhere to be found. The church isn't seen again until chapter 19 at the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven before Jesus returns to the earth. And you can, it's called apocalyptic literature, etc. There's all kinds of reasons to explain why Israel doesn't mean Israel in Revelation, etc. But it's insightful or instructive to me that the church is no longer there. That This is the day of judgment in which God is again dealing with Israel 
and with the nations. Many of the Old Testament prophecies speak of this time period as well, both the judgment that occurs in the day of the Lord and then a time of blessed reign afterwards. So, after this period, the day of the Lord, or after the end of the seven-year period, is what's called uh, typically or popularly the second coming of Christ. So, if you read Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13 or Luke 21, these are all parallel passages in the Gospels, you're reading about the second coming of Christ. I'll talk a little bit more about what that means in a second. Zechariah 14, Malachi 3 and 4, Isaiah 66, all the same thing. The second coming of Christ to earth, Revelation 6 through 19 that we just mentioned. We're not going to go into those passages this morning. There's no, as I say, this is a very, very narrow discussion because it's out of Thessalonians. We're trying to make sense of these things. So we're limiting what we're talking about. If you read these passages about the second coming, you'll notice some particulars. For instance, they all have to do with the land and the geography of the nation of Israel. All of them do. They all have to do with the Jewish nations. And when the nations are mentioned, it's the nations attacking the nation of Israel. It's a time of wrath and great tribulation. It's a very distinct period in history. Now, as I was studying for this, uh, it's one of those things you teach for 30 or 40 minutes, and you know I've studied hours. I, I feel like I know this stuff pretty well. I've studied it for years, but you've got to go back. You've got to do, do justice to the text. You know, you've got to re, uh, research everything again. Um, I realize I'm, I feel all academic that it's all about this means this. and I actually do get excited about this, and this is why. People who tell you Israel has no future, for instance, you've got to rewrite the Bible. You've got to rewrite the Old Testament because there's a ton of prophetic elements in the Bible that have never been fulfilled to the nation of Israel. God made promises to a people group that haven't happened. So when I read this stuff, I get excited because I believe God's going to keep His Word. He's going to keep His promises. And this is the thing. I mean, imagine this. 70 A.D., the Romans sack Jerusalem. It's gone. In fact, it's renamed. When they rebuild it, it's Capitolina. Death penalty for a Jew to visit their home uh, uh, capital, Jerusalem. You can't live there anymore. And for almost 2,000 years, guys, there is no nation of Israel. So until 1948, if you talked about prophetic passages being literally fulfilled to the people they were given to, you would have been scoffed and laughed at because there is no nation of Israel. And Jews that lived in Palestine, they were the minority until 1948. So if you'd said God's going to keep his word in the way he said to the people he said, you're like, how can this happen? Doesn't look like it's possible. But you look at it today and you say, well, gosh, there's a nation of Israel in the land again. And you know what? Uh, we, have, we have no sense. You know, when we read about Israel being bombed, um, we have no sense of what it's like for the nation of Israel today. They've been attacked five times by all of their neighbors. Their presence in the land of Palestine is a miracle, and I don't use that term loosely. It is miraculous. Nothing less than that. So when you hear about uh, now today Israel is Goliath oppressing the Muslim world, I'm like, get real. 
you know, this latest incursion into Gaza, they're being bombed by missiles every day by people who say you have no right to exist. This is the world into which this nation of Israel was reborn. And in 1948, guys, this is a fascinating, fascinating story. A book called O Jerusalem is a great read if you've never read it. Their ability to even start as a nation day one under the UN Charter, they were attacked day one. And they, they may very well never have become a nation had God's sovereign hand not said, there's things I'm going to do, I've made commitments, I've made promises, and I'm going to keep them. Now, my understanding at this point is God's just rearranging the, the pieces of the puzzle. I don't think we're seeing these things yet. Israel's in the land, but it's in unbelief. You know, Israel's officially a, an atheistic nation. But the pieces of the puzzle have been put back in place where these promises God made are going to be kept. And that's the thing that's particularly encouraging to me. God said, I've got promises to keep to these folks. 2,000 years roll by and we say it can't happen. And God says, oh yes, it can. If God's keeping promises, he made not just 2,000 years ago, but 3,000 years ago to this people group, do you think you can count on him to keep promises he's made to you as a Christian today? See, I make a pretty close tie there. And I'll mention Romans, well, yeah, Romans 11. Um, if you read Romans uh, up to chapter 8, and Paul says to Christians, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Do you know that passage? And he goes through all the things, height, depth, angels, principalities, etc. You know what those Romans are doing? They're scratching their heads. And they're scratching their heads for this reason. They say, Paul, you've said nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. What happened to the Jews? God made promises. He was in a covenant with the Jews. What about the Jews? Because they're dispersed, they're going to be dispersed from the land. This is before 70 AD. What about the Jews? So Paul in Romans 9, 10, 11 talks about the Jews. And in chapter 11, at the end of the talk, Paul says, by the way, all Israel will be saved. God's going to keep all those promises. Why? It says, because the gifts and the callings of God are, depending on your translation, without repentance, without regret. They can't be changed. So the prophetic passages about Israel and the day of the Lord and the rapture, to me, they're particularly exciting because they remind me, guys, it doesn't look like, it doesn't matter if it looks like it's possible for God to keep His promises. He will. If God has said something is going to happen, it will. If God has made a commitment to you, He'll keep the commitment. He can't do otherwise. And we live in in times where we forget that's the deal. God made promises and he's going to keep them. A couple more parsing, if you will, about the distinction between the rapture and the day of the Lord and the way these things shake out. In Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb to his bride, the church, occurs before Jesus returns to the earth at the second coming. His bride is with him in heaven before he returns to the earth in the second coming. In the rapture, Christ comes in the air and snatches away those folks that belong to himself and gives resurrection bodies to the saints already dead. In the second coming, Jesus returns on a white horse, Revelation 19, with the armies of heaven to the Mount of Olives. That's Zechariah 14, it's Acts 1. Paul says God has not destined Christians for wrath in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and also here in verse 9. But God's wrath is exactly what the day of the Lord is all about. You read Revelation, they're bowls of what? 
wrath being poured out upon the earth. God says, this is not what I have for the church. By the way, um, if you hold to, I hate, I cringe using the word even dispensationalism because then it becomes the straw man that people want to attack. Um, If you say that the church doesn't go through the great tribulation, people will say you're holding to a kind of fairy tale theology in which you're promising people they won't be persecuted. But that's ludicrous. That has nothing to do with it. Christians have been persecuted since the church began. Christians are being persecuted today. It's not about are Christians persecuted or are they not? It's just are they here in this persecution? And God says, no, you're not there. So it's not escapism to say Christians or the church are not here for the great tribulation. Christians get our share, not necessarily so much in the West. We get our share of persecution in the world today, still happening, more martyrs today than any time in history. So we get our share of persecution. That's not a problem. So to make sense of these events, we draw a line between the rapture and the day of the Lord so that we can make sense of both of them. The rapture is the end of God's calling Jews and Gentiles to himself in the church. The church age ends at the rapture. It's over. The day of the Lord is the beginning of God judging the nations and then restoring the people and the nation of Israel so he can bring about the messianic reign he promised them. Psalm 2, Isaiah 25, on and on and on. That's the thing. So in that string of letters that is the prophetic scriptures, we've been looking at 1 Thessalonians and touching 2 Thessalonians. That's the way I can draw lines between those letters and say, I can make sense out of this sentence, out of these unbroken letters, we can make some sense. Practically, besides being excited, because God's going to keep his promises, and we'll be a part of that, Uh, There's also a very practical effect of prophetic passages. So, if you look back at chapter 5, Paul says that my understanding of the rapture and of God's work in the future should have a very practical impact on the way I live life. So, if you look at uh, verses 5 through 8, Paul says there, "...you're sons of light." Let us not sleep as others do. Let us be sober and alert. Uh, Verse 8, let us be sober, put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. You're in a battle and you've got to be prepared. There's a practical effect to all of this. Let me read briefly from Titus uh, chapter 2 because Titus brings up these exact same thoughts. Titus 2, Paul says there, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. This grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. As a Christian, waiting for Christ to call you to himself, you're to live righteously and godly and sensibly in this present age while you look for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. I submit to you, if you read the prophetic scriptures and they don't change your life, I don't think you get it. I don't think you understand them. Paul says those who understand this are zealous for good deeds. Later in Revelation, uh, John says that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. 
In other words, if I think I've parsed up those prophetic scriptures so that I know where things lie on a timeline, but it doesn't change the way I live, I don't think I get it at all. Because that's the practical impact Paul says it's supposed to have in Thessalonians and in Titus as well. So if we read the prophetic scriptures and our lives remain unchanged, I think we don't get it. We don't get it at all. Let me close with verses 9 through 11. Paul says there, Whether we're awake or asleep, we'll live together with him, so encourage one another, build up one another, just as you also are doing. This right apprehension of this should change the way we live. Let me close with this illustration. Uh, Thinking about both expectation on one hand, and then the impact that has on my life and the other. Okay, so picture this with me. You're engaged to be married, and you're thousands of miles separated from your fiancé, okay? This is the person you love, you want to spend the rest of your life with. And let's say maybe even there's a wedding date, but it just hasn't, hadn't happened yet. All you think about, really, is your fiancé. That's who your thoughts are about all the time. And because you live in the computer age, you can Skype each other. So let's say that you sit in front of your Mac and your fiancé sits in front of their Mac or you've got your little camera, video camera on your computer. What do you do? You Skype. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Oh, my heavens. And I'm slow on this, guys. Okay. To Skype. Skype is a software where as long as your computer has a video camera, you can at no cost talk and see each other you know, uh, face-to-face, real-time. So, for instance, we Skype Adrian in England. And we'll say we're going to Skype Saturday morning, you know, 10 o'clock our time, 4 p.m. her time. So anyway, guys, slow that you are. Back to this. (laughs) We're Skyping, so we're in the Internet age. Even though you're not, we're in the Internet age. And you and your fiancé, you Skype each other. So think of this. Uh, you hang out close to that computer. And let's say because of the difference in geography, there's a time difference too. So maybe your fiancé Skypes you and it's late for them, but it's early morning for you. You know what you do? You get up early because you don't want to sit in front of that Mac with bedhead. And if you're ladies, maybe you get your makeup on because you, you don't want them to see those little bags under your eyes or whatever. You see where this goes. I have an expectation that I'm going to see my fiance and I'm going to hear their voice and they're going to talk to me and I'm going to talk to them. And I do this in lieu of this time when they're going to come back and this thing's going to last forever. But because I don't know when that is and because I don't know when that little tone on my computer is going to sound that says, you know, ding, my fiance is calling. Because I don't know that, it changes the way I live. And that's the practical impact of this. The expectation gives us hope and comfort for the future. I think God absolutely wants us to have that. We know who we belong to. He's fully in control. We know where we're going, etc. But the practical aspect of that is it changes the way we live. We've got that expectation. We don't know when we're going to see Christ. We don't want to show up with bedhead. We want to live in a way that we're ready so that whenever he Skypes us, whenever he comes in the air and calls our name, we're ready to go. Guys, this is why 
Prophetic scriptures are exciting. God keeps his word. I know he'll keep his word to me. I know he's coming back. I know it could be any time. So I want to live my life in a way that leaves me ready to see him face to face. Okay, let's pray. Lord, all of your word has meaning. And help us not to be lazy, Father, about seeking out the meaning and the wisdom and the life changing power you want us to have because we get it because we see things the way you see it because we perceive truth and reality as they are god help us to live in light of this hope these early christians had lord help us to have done with lesser trivial motivations and pursuits help us to see all things as subject to you and all the elements and people and technology and finances, hopes and dreams we have for this earth, Lord, help us to lay them all at your feet as those who have been called by your name, bought with a price, belonging to you. Help us to live with that expectation of a bride waiting for her groom and that practical aspect, Lord, that it changes us and it changes the way we see things and you and each other changes the way we act and think on this earth. Help us not to be lazy, Lord, or without hope. Thanks, Lord, that you have the future firmly in hand. Thanks that we belong to you. We entrust ourselves, Lord, with absolutely reckless abandon into your care. In Jesus' name, amen.